Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you're wondering who this elderly gentleman is who's come to the pulpit, I should perhaps introduce myself. My name is Tom Macy, M-A-C-Y, same as the store. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Faith. Um, have been here since 2004, uh, formerly for 12 and a half years was uh, lead pastor, but uh, now in a part-time role, I am the old man on the staff, and uh, most thankful for the opportunity that Pastor Jeff and Joey have given me to continue to work with them as a team, and uh, also the opportunity to preach today and, Lord willing, next Sunday also. I've often introduced myself in certain contexts uh, in terms of church background and theological perspectives, I will say I was raised in a Wesleyan Methodist home and in a Baptist church, which explains why I'm all messed up, because I didn't know which was which. Now, here's the background. My dad was steeped in Wesleyanism. Um, very conservative with major emphasis on personal holiness, and along with that came quite a few rules. Mom was a Methodist PK, preacher's kid, same Wesleyan heritage, just a more modern feel to it in what became the United Methodist Church. Uh, not quite as strict as Dad, that was probably more personality than conviction, but both very Methodist in their theological heritage, roots going back to John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism. And in fact, the proof of that is my little brothers are named Wesley and John Charles. It ran deep. But a few months before I was born, my parents relocated from northern Kansas to southern Kansas and moved into my great-grandfather's, my mom's side, homestead, less than a half mile down a gravel road to a Baptist church. Unthinkable that my parents would ever go to a Baptist church. But 
They decided they wanted to be in the community, to go to church in the community, not to travel several miles away to find a Wesleyan or Methodist church. And so they decided that they would give the Baptists a try, try to be a part of that church. It was a friendly church. It had a tagline, the little white church by the lake. I tried to find a picture to show you, and I guess it's all stuck in the clouds somewhere. I couldn't find it. But while they began to go to this church, there were concerns. Most of the Bapt- many of the Baptist men, even deacons, smoked, even on the church grounds after church. That bothered them. But it didn't deter them from continuing to go to visit. They visited for five years. Uh, but... That's pretty common among us too, so right at home here. And uh, yet, they loved the people, they loved the church, they loved the the preaching, they loved the ministry, loved the people, but they had one major concern. The Baptists believed in what many call eternal security, or once saved, always saved. And my parents weren't raised that way. Dad saw it, partly from his background in the church and partly from his experience in the army, he saw it as simply an excuse for sin. He observed examples in the army where soldiers from a Baptist heritage bragged about their infidelity, cheating on their wives while they were away from home, and claimed to be Christians, saying it didn't matter because they were saved anyway. And it was like they didn't get Paul's rhetorical question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Uh, They answered it, well, why not? Sure, we have heaven in the bank. We might as well have a good time on earth until then. But of course, Paul answered the question very differently. He said in perhaps the strongest language, people are afraid to translate it as they think he might have kind of meant it, but by no means, absolutely not. How should we who died to sin still live in it. Now, please, don't get me wrong. I am not indicting Baptists with that expression of extremes by a few. They don't take that position as in general, and that's certainly not a fair assessment of a reasonable explanation of the doctrine of eternal security. But that was the struggle they had, and that church. And after five years, though, of visiting the church, my parents were baptized the Baptist way. I was a four-year-old, five-year-old. I actually watched my parents get wet in front of the church. They joined the church, were officially Baptists then. Dad served as a Baptist deacon for 25 to 30 years until he moved back north in retirement and became a Wesleyan again. But the issue never went away. Uh, I grew up in the midst of this theological controversy, controversy with this Baptist-Methodist diversity, even taking it with me to seminary and uh, still sorting out my thinking on this question as a young pastor. Well, where did I land? Both sides of the issue I would reject as I had been taught them. I believe that both sides were in error, that they tended to pile up texts to support their position and ignored the piled up texts of the other side. That we tend to do that when we're thinking theologically. We tend to find texts that 
agree with our perspective and don't take into to, uh, uh, consideration the text that may present a different, maybe more balanced view. On the other hand, while I felt that neither side nailed it, I would also affirm that both sides raised legitimate counter-concerns. And I have come to have a much stronger view of security than my parents did. Just this morning, I read John 10, 28 to 30 in my, in my personal reading. And it's very encouraging in terms of what God says about keeping those uh, who come to Jesus. But I also, I also see serious warnings in Scripture that will be ignored to your eternal peril. Now, I could take you to a number of those passages and try to show you how I came to synthesize the text to come to convictions that don't just ignore others or engage in creative interpretation. That's another thing we do. The texts we don't like, we, we creatively interpret them to say something a little different than what they probably say. But among the texts that would have to be considered are a number of them in Hebrews. Warnings about salvation that raise challenging questions, and I'm just going to quickly summarize the, 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 the kind of the direction of this. Hebrews 2, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 6, uh, 3, 6, uh, we're his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 3, 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4, 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall or perish by the same sort of disobedience, referring to Israel's example. Hebrews 6 is probably one of the most perplexing and challenging texts with many creative interpretations. For it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. I think Pastor Joey's going to fully resolve that one here for us in just a few weeks. Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully, defiantly, deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We better pay attention to these things. This is strong. In Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and... For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These are strong warnings, texts relevant to the issue. But, of course, there are texts other than Hebrews as well. What Jesus said in the Gospels, John 6, John 10, Paul in Romans 8, Ephesians 1. The letter we call 1 John has, again, people pile up their favorite passages on both sides from 1 John. But guess what? I've been assigned this passage that has been read for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 3, not the others. I want to take this passage seriously and treat it carefully, and there's a time for systematic theology, looking at all of the relevant passages and trying to systematize what we believe. There's a place for that. But it must start with biblical theology. It must start with looking at the text on its own, and then beginning to work with other passages to help us understand. 
So I want to take this passage seriously and treat it carefully. And as I've done this over the years personally, I urge you to slowly and respectfully develop your convictions about issues where believers, true believers, have differed. Searching the scriptures. Oh, this next part's hard. Listening more than speaking. That's the hard part. Listening more than speaking. And even as you strongly disagree and will push back, avoiding a contentious attitude and spirit. Well, Pastor Jeff preached last Sunday from the previous verses, uh, contrasting Jesus and Moses, acknowledging the faithfulness of Moses in God's house as a servant, but then acknowledging the greater glory and honor of Jesus as son. Closing with the truth of verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. That is, we are part of his family, part of God's family in Christ. That is glorious news. But there's more to the verse that may tone down our relation a bit. He goes on to say, and we are his house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence. And you start to wonder where is he going with this. Well, Hebrews 3 is an unusual passage as it starts with a quotation in the last half of, of the last half of Psalm 95 where the psalm references an event in Israel's history in the book of Numbers. So we come to a text, and we're taken to another text that takes us to another text. So we have three passages this morning. One in Hebrews, one in Psalms, and the third, virtually the whole book of Numbers, chapters 13 through 36. Our text begins, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes from the Old Testament, thus affirming the Old Testament's relevance for today. That's another issue that's hit the fan today. My friends, the Old Testament is part of God's Word. It is relevant today. We have to understand the trajectory of it, taking us to the gospel and not get stuck in, in an inappropriate way in the law. But the Old Testament's still for us. It's so foundational to the New Testament. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from Psalm 95 about the experience of Israel from the book of Numbers. Now, he assumes in writing this that they knew the context in Numbers. They're Hebrews. They know it well. They probably have it memorized. Some of us are not Hebrews. If you've not read the book of Numbers... You got discouraged because the first few chapters are just a lot of numbers and you're not into numbers. Well, don't give up. Keep reading. Some of the most dramatic portions in all the Bible are found in the book of Numbers, including what's referenced here. But just a quick summary, if I can speed through this and at least give some context. He speaks of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes of Jacob or Israel who were delivered out of slavery. Uh, After 400 years, Moses was their leader. Uh, We jump forward to the angel of death who went through Egypt in night, 
uh, of uh, uh, that particular night and struck down the firstborn of every uh, home in Egypt, firstborn of people and animals. But they were told to slaughter a lamb, one in each household, put the blood of the lamb over the door, and the angel of death would pass over, that's where the word comes from, would pass over that house and not bring death to that home. So the Israelites were spared. The Egyptians came under this awful judgment, and the Israelites were finally released to leave Egypt, to leave slavery. So they left Egypt. They came to the mountain of God. They received the law. They built the tabernacle. They headed north to the land of promise expecting to be there within a few months. They'd already been, because of the long stop at the mountain, they'd been going for over a year, maybe a year, year and a half. Uh, So it's been a long time, but they're just a few weeks, months at the most, away from entering the promised land. And Numbers 13 and 14 is really the, the crux of the immediate context and following. But it tells us that Moses sent a 12-man reconnaissance team into the promised land to check it out. And they did. And wow, were they impressed in two ways. They were impressed with how fruitful the land was, that it was all that and more than God promised, but they were also impressed and frightened by the size of the people, the fortified cities, and they said, we can't attack them. Yeah, it's a great place to go, but we can't do it. Even though God said they should and they would win, but they didn't believe God. So it was a major failure of faith and led to God's judgment on an entire generation. Condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that first generation was all dead. Except for Caleb and Joshua, two spies who didn't join the negative report. This is where Hebrews 3 picks it up, using Israel's story as a warning to us, quoting from the last half of Psalm 95, today, and he's now speaking to believers, quoting from Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Oh, this is is devastating. Do you see the points of failure for Israel? Can we learn from it? Hardened hearts in rebellion. Disobedience to God when they were tested. Always a, a hard issue at the core. You notice it always comes to a heart, back to a hard issue. Putting God to the test. God tested them. They failed that test. But God didn't fail, continuing to provide daily bread from heaven. He was so good to them. There was a judgment on them. Forty years of wandering. They would die in the wilderness. And yet God graciously, in a place where there was no food to be found, provided food every day. And the Bible says for 40 years they didn't lack. And even their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out. 
Oh, God is so gracious. But the indictment of Psalm 95 continues the failure of the Exodus generation. They always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways. They shall never enter my rest. And the assessment of Psalm 95 is elaborated on in verses 16 to 19, explaining the root cause of this disastrous result, asking a series of questions. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? They were delivered from Egypt, but they did not enter into the promise. They identified as the people of God who experienced, who saw what God did for the people of God, but they fell short. Reminds me of Romans 9 where it says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so what we see is the believing community does not have 100% believers in the community. And so also not all who identify with the church really belong to the church. That is, are true believers. Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Again, they they identified as the people of God, but fell short of the destination, and they died. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? The outward evidence that reveals what went wrong The outward evidence is what they did, their rebellion, their sin, their disobedience to God. But verse 19 takes it deeper to the real root, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So ultimately, again, you get the outward evidence of the works they did, but the ultimate issue is faith. And sadly, I mean, this is is the Old Testament. Sadly, the next 1,400 years up to the time of Jesus was the same. Rebellion, divine judgment, and exile. So, what does this have to do with us? My friends, this is more than history. This is more than a history lesson of Israel. I'm teaching high school history this year. I have three students, and it's quite an experience. Uh, But even on that level, which is not near as important as this, I don't want them just to learn what happened some time ago. I want them to see how it relates and what we can learn from it for today. And how much more important it is as we look at biblical history and relate that to us. This is a warning to those who claim to be the people of God today. And we better take that warning seriously. Now, before we begin to make applications specifically, we need to look at two key words uh, foundational to this message and next week too. This is really a two-part thing. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the word today is found five times. And the word rest is found ten times. 
Now, normally you see two simple words like that, today and rest, and you're not going to spend a lot of time with it. But I'm telling you, those words have a particular significance in this passage more than any other text in the Bible, and we better pay attention to them. Today, it's a simple word that most understand. It's not yesterday or tomorrow. It's today. It's right now. But this is not, this, this meaning is not that, well, today is Sunday as opposed to yesterday, which was Saturday, or tomorrow, which is Monday. When it says today, if you would hear his voice, uh, Peter O'Brien says it stresses the immediacy of the Word of God to the present generation. Today. You need to pay attention. Heads up. God is speaking. Listen to him. Now, Psalm 95 is anonymous in the Old Testament, but Hebrews 4 7 credits it to King David. So it's at least 400 years after the events of Numbers. I assume it's either written by David or part of the collection of Psalms that uh, have David's name associated to it. His point is, what happened in Numbers 13 and 14 and the rest of the book is still relevant to the today of Psalm 95 at about 1000 B.C. or later, but also in the today of Hebrews 3 and 4, a thousand years after that, in A.D. 60 or 65, and it is still today in the present time in 2018. So this today lasts a long time. In our current context, it's always today. A week ago, Friday, Linda and I got to go to uh, uh, Brownsburg to a combined East-West middle school production of Annie Jr., just kind of a shortened version of, of Annie. And uh, our granddaughter had a very prominent role as the middle curtain master. So, of course, the play could not go on without her. But you know the signature song of Annie, don't you? Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. But the sad conclusion, you're always a day away. Every tomorrow turned into another today in the orphanage, the suffering place for these orphans under the cruel Miss Hannigan. They dreamed of tomorrow, but every tomorrow was just another today. We get excited about what's happening tomorrow, what's scheduled tomorrow. Maybe you're dreading tomorrow. I don't know if you're dreading it or looking forward to it. But the problem is tomorrow never comes, not in this context, because it becomes the new today. Until we die, we will always be in our own today. It's not a tomorrow show. It's the today show. We're stuck in today. But that's both good and bad. It's filled with both opportunity and danger. The focus here, though, is danger. Hebrews 3.13, 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But the warnings of danger are only given for a positive good purpose, to protect you. And so underlying the negative challenge is a very positive message. The opportunity for the day, the positive thing about today, is that as long as it is today, there is still the opportunity to follow Jesus and trust in Him and be saved. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, quoting from Isaiah 49. I love Isaiah 49. I love all of Isaiah. I love the whole Bible. Isaiah 49 is... It includes a major statement about the Gentiles being included. That this Old Testament is not just about Israel. It's about Israel as an example of what God is going to do for the whole world in terms of providing a Savior. Quoting from Isaiah 49, Paul says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul applies that to the current time Today, he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The warning is given today to let you know that today is a day of salvation. If you'll receive him, if you'll believe. Today is also the time to be vigilant, to be on guard against the hardening of your heart in rebellion. It's the day to double down in obedient trust in Jesus today. The other word found ten times in these two chapters is rest. Rest. That's a good word, isn't it? How many of you are tired? Is Sunday a day of rest or just another day of mania? We long for rest, a little ease, a little comfort, cessation of painful toil and sweat that's been our lot since Genesis 3. It's it's a wonderful word. It's not related to it in any way, but it has the feel, for me at least, of, of the Hebrew shalom, um, the health, the, the well-being, the, the peace and the joy that we long for more than a much-needed rest after a hard day or a nice break after a, 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 after a hard year by going on vacation. It's far more than that. St. Augustine, one of my favorite quotes outside the Bible, expresses it on a, a different level. He says, our souls are restless. Stirred up, uneasy, we're, we're, our souls are restless, unable to rest until they rest in Thee, God. The reference is God here. Eight of the ten references are my rest, His rest, that rest. It's talking about God's rest. It has to do with our relationship with God and the the rest for Israel in the immediate context of, of the Numbers event is about the fulfillment of God's promise to, after being in, in uh, 
Exodus, in Exodus, after being in Egypt, brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then wandering in the wilderness, they're finally going to go to the place of rest, the land of promise, land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land we call Israel. But Hebrews tells us that the experience of Israel is a, a shadow. It's a shadow, a, a type of the heavenly things, Hebrews 8, 5, just as the law is a shadow of the good things that, that are to come instead of the true form of these realities. We're dealing in shadows. We're dealing in symbols. We're dealing in types that are pointing to a reality that is far more important. The true realities have to do with God and our eternal future. Hebrews 4.9, we'll get to it next week, but it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is a, a different word that's translated rest, but it has to do with God's rest, the Sabbath. And not just the, the seventh day of the week that they were supposed to practice but ignored, but a future Sabbath, a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And so ultimately this is about eternity with God. This is about salvation. Heaven or hell is at stake here. We're going to be at rest with God or not at rest with God. The contrast is found in the book of Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. No rest. That's called hell, to have no rest. It's described in a number of other ways, but that's one of them. Revelation 14, 13 is the glorious contrast. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow them. An end to all labor and suffering. By the way, by the way this is not a circular view of things. This is a linear view. We're going somewhere, and in Christ, we're going to that consummation of our relationship with God in eternal rest. I'm not going to have to cycle around several times. No. We're headed to that rest if we're in Christ. But this is how serious the warning of judgment is from Psalm 95. Brought to us the warning based on Israel's response and our response now, they shall never enter my rest. So, as the word is used in Hebrews 3 and 4, it's clearly a warning about falling short of God's eternal rest, falling short of heaven itself. Your eternal salvation is at stake and our rest then is our salvation through the crucified and risen Christ who took our sin upon himself, who gives us his righteousness if we trust him, if we truly put our faith in him. And that glorious rest is consummated at death for those who are his, absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, I, I have to develop a lot more of the practical and personal side of this next week and, and uh, I hope to bring some uh, examples that will be encouraging to you. But... Um, let's uh, look at the practical lessons for today that are in Hebrews 3, 12 to 15. 
I'm not going to develop them very much, but I hope you'll take them seriously. Number one, warnings to persevere in faith. A faith that doesn't persevere is not real. Take care, brothers. This is verse 12. Look at it. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Within the visible family of believers, there are unbelievers. And each of us need to check our hearts for that. Now, a message like this and warnings like this are incredibly challenging for me because I I sort of get this sense that may the Holy Spirit overcome this problem in your life and in all of our lives, but I sort of get this sense that that those who have a very sensitive heart who really are saved then begin to doubt their salvation when they shouldn't, and those who have hard hearts who need to reconsider whether or not they're saved, it just kind of bounces off of them. So Holy Spirit, make this land where it needs to land today is my prayer. Daily exhortation. Verse 13, exhort one another every day. This is probably more of a house church situation where they all live pretty close together and and they, they see probably each other almost every day. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reason we're a part of a, a community of the delivered having been part of the exodus coming out of Egypt. And, and let, me, let me start over there. The, the point is you can be a part of the community of the delivered having been part of the exodus coming out of Egypt and not be at rest, not going into the land of promise. And so it is in the church. You can be part of the visible church and not truly be a child of God. And one of the reasons for the community of believers and our regular gathering is to exhort one another to persevere in the faith. And no matter how you came in here with your views on eternal security, don't ignore these warnings. The danger of apostasy is real as long as it is today. Number three, conditional encouragement. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he talks about back at a point in time when we, when we first begin to grasp a hold of the gospel and say, yeah, I think this is true and, and, and express some statement of belief in it and where you are now, sometime later, where are you now compared to where you were then? Your assurance that you're a believer going to heaven when you die is not that you repeated the words of a prayer that your 
mom or your Sunday school teacher asked you to repeat. I am not mocking that practice. That very well may have been, I'm guessing for many of you it was, the moment in which you, by faith, entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'm not mocking that. But your assurance is not that. Your assurance is not that you walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade and someone did the same for you there with taking you through steps to peace with God or or, or through four laws on a university campus. That very well may have been the moment of your new birth, your genuine faith in Jesus. It has been for many. Perhaps very real that you were saved in. But the assurance of the reality of your faith then is the reality of your faith today. That you have not turned back in unbelieving rebellion, but continue to look to Jesus and His death for you on the cross as your hope, as your only hope of entering God's rest. If you don't continue to believe, if you don't continue to believe, you can't look back on a memory of a time when you think you believed. The question is, do you believe now? Do you believe and trust in Jesus today? Now, I will not resolve all the questions about the security of salvation. I'd be happy to interact with you, but I want to stay with this text. These are some of the texts that trouble folks, that ought to trouble folks on both sides of the discussion. A key passage that has helped me that I think corrects, helps correct thinking on both sides. And again, I, I, really, I really have rejected both views as, as I was exposed to them as a child. But I think correcting both sides is 1 John 2.19, which I think is what it's saying here in Hebrews as well. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. Evidence of genuine faith is perseverance. True faith in Jesus lasts. Faith that does not last is not true faith. And that's consistent with this message. Verse 10, they have not known my ways implies they never did, but were only nominal Israelites, nominal Christians, name only, not real. They have false hopes based on false faith, proven by their rebellion, to whom Jesus says very plainly in John, in Matthew chapter 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so also, in Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm and to the end. I have more to say about this next Sunday. This is a two-part sermon. I hope you'll come back and be with us. But at the same time, as we leave this text today on a very sober note, I pray you will take the warning seriously. Look to Jesus. 
Keep your focus on him in unrelenting faith. Oh God, you know the stirring of minds and hearts in each person here. Again, I pray that you would apply your word, your warnings, your assurances, that you would graciously apply them in each mind and heart today, that we might know the truth about ourselves, that we might enjoy the assurance that is real, that any false assurance might be exposed, and that as long as it's today, as long as it's today, to grasp hold that this is the day of salvation, to truly trust in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.